0: Would take for you to amaze Jesus? You ever thought about that? I mean, maybe you haven't. Maybe you just thought about what can make him happy with me. But what would it take to amaze him? Maybe you'd think it would be like um, really being faithful and obeying all the Ten Commandments. Or maybe you would think it would be serving his mission with all of my heart. Or, or maybe you think it would just be living a pure life and, and saying no to sin. These would be things that would amaze Jesus. But I don't think that anywhere on your list was unbelief. That somehow unbelief would amaze Jesus. Well, Today we're going to look at an account in the Gospel of Mark, where we've been for 10 weeks now, into 11 weeks in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is amazed but in a way that you would never see coming. Especially from the group of people that amaze him. People who should know better. People who should, of all people, seen Jesus for who he really was. But yet instead, they showed amazing unbelief. Amazing unbelief. Grab your Bibles and we're going to go to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible but you use a smart device... We encourage you to use that YouVersion Bible app that's available for free in your app store to follow along. Our notes are there. If you go to events, you'll find Neighborhood Church listed under live events that are there. Our notes are also available through our website. But in Mark chapter 6, what we saw on the screen were quite a few stories woven together. But what we're going to see is they are kind of book in stories of people's unbelief and rejection of truth. And Mark spends a good amount of time on this event. So in Mark 6, it's interesting because we had just finished, in fact, Pastor Rob did a great job sharing with us these great stories of faith. Right on the the heels of chapter 5, we see the story of Jairus, whose daughter is sick and dying, and he goes to Jesus to ask that he would heal her. And so we see this great faith in Jairus, even after he receives the news that she is dead. And yet Jesus still does a miraculous thing through his faith. We see in the midst of that story a woman with an, with a with a hemorrhage issue she's had for years, who, because of her faith, presses through the crowd just to touch the hem of his robe, and she is healed. We see these remarkable stories of faith. Why would Mark turn his attention now to chapter six? Well, all of a sudden we're confronted not with faith, but with unbelief from people that should have known better. Let's look at it. Mark 6, verse 1, Jesus left there, so the there was where five ended. He was in Capernaum. He was ministering. He was healing people. He left there, and he returned and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. So he goes to his hometown. What was Jesus' hometown? It wasn't Bethlehem, in case you thought that was his hometown. That's where he was born. Remember the story? Luke chapter 2 kind of tells us why they were there. That's where he was born, because Joseph, his father, or kind of earthly father figure, was of the house and line of David, and so that's where Jesus was born. They maybe spent a couple of years there, but they eventually returned and settled in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. Now, Nazareth was no town of any great significance. In fact, It'd be kind of like one of those towns where if you met somebody from a big city and said, well, I'm from Nazareth, they would go, where's that? Or they might even say, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, it kind of, if anything, has a bad reputation. This little community of Nazareth was only about 60 acres worth of land, and it was only populated by around 500 people. So it was a small town. And how many of you came from maybe a small town, maybe less than 1,000, right? In a small town, everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business, and everybody gets into everybody's business. You know what I'm talking about? And that's exactly the town in which Jesus grew up in, Nazareth, and he goes back to his hometown. Now, he'd been here before, obviously grew up and lived there. He left from Nazareth to start his ministry. But we see him in, the, in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus returning to Nazareth. It's not the same account as Mark records. This was an earlier episode where Jesus went back to his home, back in Nazareth, and he taught in the synagogue which was common for him to do when he visited a town, was to attend or to teach. And this particular day in Nazareth, when he taught in the synagogue, he shared from the scroll that was opened, and it was the prophet Isaiah who spoke about the spirit of the sovereign God is upon me. That's what he was reading that day. And he said to the crowd, this scripture has been fulfilled today in your hearing. In other words, I am the one the scripture is talking about. Well, his fellow Nazarites did not take his message very well. They drove him out of the synagogue, took him to the edge of the city because Nazareth is on kind of a cliff setting, and they were were about to toss him off the cliff. Welcome home, Jesus. We're going to throw you off the cliff. He escapes unharmed, the Bible records in Luke. And my question is, why in the world would Jesus go back to Nazareth again, right? I mean, it's like if I was taken to the edge of town to be thrown off a cliff. Would I be in a hurry to go back? No, I just shake the dust from my sandals and say, good riddance to you fools. I'm leaving. But here we see Jesus coming back to his hometown. Well, it goes on, verse 2, that when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, why would he be invited to teach? Last time, they threw him out of town. Well, Every man that was a Jew could attend synagogue, and it wasn't like one guy, talking head, always preached. There were often guest teachers, or even among the group, the men would speak and share Scripture and encourage one another. So he was there, so he began to speak on this particular day in the synagogue. And we see that an important thing about Jesus coming back to Nazareth, and it was this because of his love and his grace, that Jesus is willing to give Nazareth a second chance and is willing to give us a second chance. I mean, I would have written him off, right? So would have you. But he goes back, he preaches. Why? Because he is burdened for his fellow citizens. He's burdened for his community. Why? Because a lot of these folks are actually his relatives, their distant relatives or cousins, aunts, uncles, they're there in this community because oftentimes the tribal aspects of Israel would keep family members together in their community. So he was burdened for them, so he returns as a sign of his love and his grace. And friends, here's the good news for you, because maybe you felt like you've one chance beyond Jesus now. Here's the good news for you. He continues by his love and grace to give us a second chance, or maybe for you it's the Hundred and second chance. I don't know where you're at, but he is the one who is the redeemer. That's what we see about him coming back to Nazareth when probably nobody else would have. But verse two goes on, and many who heard him were amazed. It seemed like amazement always followed Jesus. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we see Mark he favors the word amazed. We see it several times already up to this point. In fact, back in Mark 1.22, when he was teaching in Capernaum, it says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. We move on in that same setting, verse 27. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? We see in in Mark 2 verse 12, this is when he had been teaching in the house and remember what happened, the roof opened and down comes the paralyzed man and and Jesus forgives him of his sin and, and tells him to get up and take his mat and go home and it says in verse 12, he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying we've never seen anything like this. Just the last chapter, Mark chapter 5, verse 20, he sets that demoniac free in the garden of the Gadarenes. Remember that area? He sets this demoniac with the legion of demons in him free. That man returns to his home, verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So Jesus leaves a trail of amazement wherever he goes. And he's teaching today in the synagogue, and the people are amazed. But before you maybe think there's hope for the people of Nazareth, their amazement is not the same amazement as those that saw and heard Jesus' teaching. See, that kind of amazement is awe and it's wonder about these great things Jesus did. The actual amazement his fellow people of Nazareth showed was more like speculation, perplexion. They were absolutely offended by him. Not amazed and like, wow, that's awesome, but amazed and like, how dare he? That's the kind of amazement that they had. They were surprised to hear Jesus teaching like a rabbi because they know he's not a rabbi. They knew who he was. In fact, we'll get there in a minute. They were shocked that here he was again entering the synagogue teaching. Their amazement was not, oh, this is awesome teaching. Their amazement was far different. In fact, they, 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 they questioned him. Where does this man get these things? They asked, What is this wisdom that has been given him? Where are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Where are these coming from? In other words, they were suspicious of Jesus. In fact, maybe they were like the teachers of the law were attributing Jesus' power to Satan himself because they could not believe this guy they grew up with was doing this. You know, Jesus wasn't in the yearbook of Nazareth as the one most likely to do miracles. Okay, that's not the way it worked. They were amazed, but not in the way we would hope. You know, are you amazed by Christ? And if you're amazed, which side of the amazement coin are you? Are you the amazed who's like still in awe and wonder of Jesus and how much he has loved you and what he has done, that he is the son of God and he's provided for you your salvation and eternal life and abundant life? Is that the side of the amazement coin? Or are you on the other side of the amazement coin where maybe for you, your love and adoration has turned over the years to suspicion about Jesus? Maybe you're perplexed because it doesn't seem like
1: It's good for you, or maybe you're even flabbergasted
0: about Jesus. See, here's the deal, friends. Amazement in Jesus doesn't mean that you truly believe in Jesus. You know, there are people who are not followers of Jesus who are amazed by the historical figure of Jesus. And they kind of equate him as a Mother Teresa who went around doing good, having compassion, loving people, but he was nothing more than a do-gooder. They may have been amazed at what he did, but they did not believe in him. And some of you maybe grew up around Jesus and you're amazed by Jesus, but do not confuse that with belief in him. Now, our amazement in Christ in a positive way should Move us to believe that he is who he said he is. It's a great vehicle to get us here, but amazement doesn't save you.
1: Belief does. And Nazareth failed, for the
0: most part, in being truly amazed to belief about Jesus. Well, it goes on because they begin now in their ridicule of Jesus to pepper the crowd with questions to belittle him, to lower this great amazement that maybe a few gullible people were beginning to experience. And so they pepper him with questions. And what's interesting is these are questions that are meant to be answered only one way. They call them a rhetorical question when the answer is obvious. And the answer they all assumed was yes, 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 and yes. And in reality, they were right. The answer to all these questions was yes. The first one was this. Isn't this the carpenter? In other words, they knew Jesus, not as Savior, not as Lord, not as Messiah, not as miracle worker, carpenter. Why? Because Jesus was indeed a carpenter. So yes, he was the carpenter. He grew up with his father Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter. And as a young man living in Nazareth, Jesus Learned the trade of carpentry. Probably his brothers as well learned how to be carpenters. Now, carpenter means simply a builder. So it could be he worked with wood, it could be he worked with stone. So, as these people are seeing Jesus, they probably saw him years ago because for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he lived in Nazareth. He probably worked carpentry from the age of 13 all the way until he was 30. 17 years of carpentry work. That means probably every household in Nazareth and around had Jesus in there fixing a table, building a table, fixing farm equipment. He was probably involved in some of the construction around in some of the Greek influenced cultures where he was using his stonemason ability to build things. And they worked alongside Jesus. He looked pretty ordinary. When he hit his thumb, it hurt. I don't know what he said because there's no account of what Jesus would say when he hits the sun with a, with a hammer. I probably know he didn't say his own name. <laughs> I, mean, I can probably guarantee you that. But, <laughs> but they're looking at him, working with him, going, he's, an, he's ordinary. We know this guy. Familiarity bred contempt for them. All he was was the carpenter. In fact, Jesus, why don't you go out of the synagogue right now and go fix my table? That's who he is, ordinary. You're just a common carpenter like us. In fact, carpenters were not a high, high high-held position. They were menial laborers. He was a carpenter, pretending to be a rabbi, like he had some kind of authority when all this guy could do was swing a hammer. That's all he was he wore a tool belt. He grunted
1: like Tim the Toolman. That's all he was, carpenter.
0: Next question, isn't this Mary's son? Some translations say son of Mary. Now, lest we think that somehow Scripture is elevating Mary, this is actually a derogatory statement leveled at Mary and Jesus, because you never called a man The son of the mother's name. You never did. Culturally, you were always the son of your father's name. So you would either call him son of Joseph if you didn't believe he was divinely, you know, made, or you would call him son of God. But you would never call him son of Mary. That was a slap in the face. It was as though they were saying, because we know, (laughs) we know how Jesus was born, right? Mary and Joseph, he's not the product of Mary and Joseph. He's a product of God, there was a whole lot of scandal around the birth of Jesus because they thought there was some hanky-panky between maybe Joseph and Mary before marriage. And so what he is is a baby born out of wedlock. There's a name for those I won't use in the church setting. But when he says that this is the son of Mary, he was basically saying he is a son of, uh, and you fill in the blank. Carpenter and now...
1: son of a whore.
0: Wow, this hurts. Where he's, where they're going, how they viewed. That means that even almost 30, well, yeah, definitely 30 years later, the scandal around Jesus's birth is still alive in Nazareth. It's still a hotbed of gossip about this baby born out of marriage that's coming back now to somehow prove he's something to us. He's nothing but a carpenter, born of a woman who did not keep herself pure to marriage. Now, if you were Jesus, how would you be thinking about these people right now, right? What would you feel about them? How could you stand and watch yourself become accused and your mother, who was absolutely pure? How
1: do you handle that? And it goes on. And the brothers of James,
0: Joseph, Judas, and Simon... And aren't his sisters here with us? In other words, they're common, ordinary people. We've lived with them. We've seen their stuff. We know their stories. Could you imagine being the brother of Jesus? If we look at this, Jesus was born first, but Mary and Joseph still continued to have babies. So for those of you who kind of came from a Catholic faith, Mary did not stay a perpetual virgin, okay? There's a whole lot of speculation around this story, but Mary and Joseph still had kids, and their names were... James, Joseph, Judas, Simon. Now, this Judas isn't the one who betrayed Jesus, although by his actions he certainly did. But this was Judas, who also was known Jude, and we'll get to his name here in a minute. But these are very ordinary people. Could you imagine the ridicule in home? Because you know what? We, we don't know much about Jesus' brothers, but we do know this. None of them believed that he was who he said he was. In fact, they came to rescue Jesus Once, because they thought he was insane, out of his mind, when he heard that the people were about to kill Jesus. They came to rescue him. I'm sure, could you imagine growing up with his brothers? Oh, that's Jesus. I think he was actually adopted. He's not one of us. He doesn't look like us. Could you imagine? And here's what that's also, if they didn't believe in Jesus, you know what they also didn't believe? The testimony of their own mother. So could you imagine the tension within this family? You might think your family has stuff. You might think your family has drama. Friends, this family was ripe with drama all the way across the relatives who did not believe that Jesus was who he was among his own village people. So he's rejected. You know what else is interesting? It says that they took offense at him. They took offense at Jesus because of, of of who he was. This word offense is the word we get our English word scandal from. All they could see was a scandal at work. It was scandalous. It was just play. It was nothing, nothing true about who he was. In fact, it's the same word they use, and this is interesting. I, this is totally cool. It's the same word they use in the carpentry business when a stone is rejected to be used for construction. It's called a scandalon. It is a rejected stone. I think that's interesting because Psalms talks about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Prophecy saw this moment coming. God allowed Jesus to experience ridicule and rejection, not only among his own people, but the nation of Israel as well, who'd reject him. And Jesus himself used that verse to describe him,
1: the stone that was rejected. And i got to
0: ask the question for, him, for us today, is Jesus a scandal on for you? Are we embarrassed by him in public? Do we have a very private faith because I don't want my friends or my, or, or my peers or my co-workers to know that I'm a follower of Jesus because I'm afraid of the shame that might come with that, or I'm, I'm afraid of the scandal they might think when they look at me and go, you're a follower of Jesus because you kind of act like us. And so you're afraid of the hypocrisy that might come along with that. Jesus is not going to work well with people who are ashamed of him. We see what happens in Nazareth here in a moment. But there are only two responses, friends, to the lordship of Jesus. It is either rejection or subjection, but there is no middle ground. You can't come to him kind of 50-50. As Lord, he is either Lord and you are subject to him, or you reject his authority over your life there's no there's no middle ground. There's no like, well, I think we're okay.
1: No. Goes on in verse 4.
0: Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home." He uses a common saying of the day to describe what is happening. He's a prophet, yes, he's a spokesman for God, and he is without honor in his own hometown among his own relatives. Friends, let me just challenge you with this. You might be the only one in your family that's a follower of Jesus. You might feel rejection because you're choosing to be a Christian among your peers, your coworkers. But don't allow their rejection to, to deter you from the faith. Jesus was rejected. He knows what that feels like. Stay true to him. Follow him, even among the ridicule of your family or friends. Because Jesus is worth that. It goes on in verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. This is just incredible to me. It wasn't that Jesus came home and he was powerless. Okay? He is still a son of God. He is still able to exercise the authority given by God to do miraculous things. But it says that he did not do or could not do any miracles. The reason for that was basically because... While he could have done greater miracles, he chose not to because of their unbelief. He was not going to open the bag of tricks and say, oh, yeah, you think I'm a carpenter? You think I'm a son of a, you think that these are just my brothers and I'm ordinary? Let me show you. He could have opened his bag of tricks and and did all kinds of things to amaze them, really, really amaze them. He could have become the transfigured Lord right before their eyes. And blinded them because of the sheer glory of who he is. But he didn't. Because he is not going to honor unbelief.
1: He's not going to honor unbelief.
0: And so he doesn't. There were a few, it says, that came to him. And I think these are ones probably who came to them in faith. Because when you come to Jesus by faith, friends, he will accept you by faith. So a few came And a few found healing. But that number was so small in comparison to the community of Nazareth. How sad that was But that was the way it worked. And friends, as a general principle, here's the deal. God's power follows faith. So if you feel powerless in your life or if you wonder why God's not working in your family or in your work or in your situation the way you could, friends, ask yourself, what is the quality of my faith? because in the Bible, unbelief is a mindset. It's a stubborn refusal to believe, and it's a, basically, it's a form of moral rebellion. And that's what Nazareth was. They were rebelling against the authority and power of Jesus. And here's what happens because of unbelief. It blinds us to the truth, and it robs us of hope. That's what unbelief does. And you've got friends you've been praying for that are unbelievers, you have family members you've been praying for, and they can't see it yet because unbelief blinds them to the truth. So we're praying, Holy Spirit, do a work in their life only you can do to open their eyes to the truth. And you keep praying for them, friends, because many of you are the product of a praying family member or friend who prayed until you would believe. So pray for them. But here's the sad, sad state. Their unbelief robs them of hope, which they so desperately need. You keep praying, you keep pressing through, and you guard yourself against unbelief in your own heart because of what it does, blinding you to truth. And Jesus is truth, blinding you to hope, and he's the one who came to give hope. Verse 6, though, summarizes Jesus' standpoint on this. Look at what he says. It says that he was amazed at their lack of faith. He had been rejected before, Remember? The capitalists, he went on crossed the sea and he and he set that demon-possessed man free. And the city villagers came to Jesus and said, Leave. We don't see that point where Jesus says, or or Mark records, and Jesus was amazed by their lack of faith. He's been rejected before. The reason that Jesus is amazed, and by the way, this is the same amazed word we read about in those accounts in Scripture where people were amazed by Jesus. It's the same Greek word that is used, amazed. And there's only a couple of times in Scripture that Jesus is amazed. One of those is when a centurion comes to Jesus. That means a Roman, a pagan, comes to Jesus because his servant is sick. And he says, Jesus, I'm asking you to heal my servant. Jesus says, let's go. He says, no, Jesus, you don't have to go. You just say the word because I'm a man in authority. I know when when I say something, my men do it. If you just speak now, he'll be healed. And Jesus was blown away by this man's faith. In fact, it says in the account in Matthew 8, it says that when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith wow, what a great story. I want to be that centurion. That's who I want to be. That's the size of the amazement coin I want to show. The other time Jesus is amazed is right here in Mark chapter 6, where he is amazed, blown away by their lack of faith.
1: Friends, here's here's the truth. Jesus is still amazed by faith. Still is. Which kind of faith are you going to amaze him with? Unbelief or belief? How
0: do you want to amaze Jesus? What do you want him to see in you that he goes, Whoa, I can't believe that? How are you going to respond to that kind of a question of how you might want to amaze Jesus? Well, it goes on. Then Jesus went out around teaching from village to village, which means he left Nazareth. And friends, we never see him return. We never see him return. Now, the good news is his brothers, by the way, who didn't believe in Jesus, actually do believe him. Acts talks about it. After he's dead and resurrected, his brothers believe in him. And so they believe in him. They become part of the church. In fact, James, his brother, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, dies a martyr's death because of what he believes about Jesus, he's also the one who writes the book of James. It's in the New Testament. Judas is called Jude. He also becomes a a believer in his brother. That sounds kind of weird. But a believer that Jesus, his brother, is who he said he was, he's the one who writes the book of Jude, more than likely. So the great news there is that people do in Nazareth do end up believing. We hope that maybe they would believe the testimony of his brothers now. But he leaves, and he goes around and teaches. And then we see the stories move forward where Jesus commissions his disciples and we don't have time to go there but he commissions them and they go about and they preach and they set people free and they heal and it's and it's a wonderful kind of mid part of the story where we see faith in action. When people truly believe, we see Jesus' provision and his power and his work through people who really believe. Word gets to Herod about what's happening, and he thinks that Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist who he kills. And so we see Mark kind of go back into history a bit to see why John got arrested. What we see through Herod's action is rejection and unbelief to please people His daughter-in-law, well, really, stepdaughter-in-law, and his wife, Herodias. A rejection of truth. So we have this kind of bookends of rejection with a little glimmer of hope in the middle. This passage truly highlights that saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Because we all, as humans, have a tendency to lose our appreciation or our wonder or our amazement of those things that become familiar to us, of those things that become routine. Of those things that, that just become, they're kind of in close proximity to us all the time and we take them for granted, don't we? Because that statement is true. So here's Jesus, grows up among these people in Nazareth and they can't believe he is who he is. Why? Because they are treating him with contempt because he's too familiar. And friends, here's what I gotta ask you. Does your familiarity with Jesus lead you to contempt or commitment? Are you committed to him because you know him Or you treat him as though he's nothing. Here's the thing, teaching or treating Jesus as a familiar friend will leave your faith empty in the end. Some of you are like, I know Jesus, he's my friend. In fact, there's a YouTube sensation song from, I think, like the 70s that Jesus is a friend of mine. If you haven't YouTube that song, it's a hoot to watch these goofy people. This can't even be real Christian stuff, but it's, look it up, Jesus is a friend of mine. Uh, and we sing friends like, songs like, I'm a friend of God, he calls me friend. Yeah, the truth is, Jesus did look at his disciples and say, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. That was Jesus' perspective. But we don't dare turn the tables and look at Jesus as though he's some just friend of ours that we friend on Sundays but forget about him the rest of the days. He's not somebody you click and say, Oh, he's a friend doesn't work that way because that's a dangerous place to be if we look at Jesus as just a friend that we nod to occasionally or wink at or, or ask for help on occasion. If that's all he is, friends, that's dangerous ground and here's why. Because if I'm just treating him as, like a friend, then I will not honor him as Lord. He hasn't asked me to be his friend. He's demanded that I submit to him as Lord, which means dying to myself, taking up my cross and following him. Those are the words of Jesus. Not, not just, hey, will you like me? will you be my friend? That's not what he's asking for. And we dare not approach him as some casual friend, because that is not who Jesus is. If you keep him as a friend, then you will not experience the life transformation that you desperately need, because friends can't change your life, but lords can. If he's just a friend of yours, then you'll become bored and frustrated with your faith. Because you won't believe that he's the one who's able to do through you what only he can do as Lord. If he's your friend, then, then you'll, be, you'll live a powerless life. That's nothing more than religious tradition where you come on Sunday and honor a guy named Jesus, a good friend of yours, but you go home and wrestle with sin and you struggle with your brokenness. You'll never find the power to live a victorious life if he's just a friend of yours. And here's the scariest part, friends of all. You'll risk eternal separation from him if he is just a friend. I don't want to stand before him someday and say, Jesus, buddy, you know me, right? I know you. I know all about you. I don't want to hear him say, Kelly, I wasn't looking for a friend, I was looking for a follower not a casual friend who who leans on me when it's hard or comes to me on one day of the week as though it's like my day to be friends. It's friend day with Jesus, let's go. I'm looking for a committed follower. It's committed followers, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, come enter the rest I have for you. Friends? No. No. Because there is this account, and Jesus gives in Scripture, where people come to him and said, Jesus, you know us. We did great things in your name. You know what he said to Him? Depart from me. I don't know you. What do you want to be greeted with in front of the King of kings and Lord of lords? We don't play around with this, friends. We don't want to be people of amazing unbelief. But rather, I want to have incredible faith in my Lord that I worship as Lord. Let's pray. Father, in this time, as we think about your word and we look at Mark and we we see the response of the people of Nazareth who grew up with Jesus, but he was too familiar to them that they wrote him off as some kind of freak. Today, there are still people that write you off as a freak, or maybe nothing better than a good person in history. But Jesus, you'll never settle for that because that's not who you are. But we examine our own hearts right now because I think there might be some in the room who have treated you as a friend and they believe that just because you're a friend, you'll overlook, you'll overlook their, their propensities to sin and indulge in the sinful nature because you're just a friend. You'll be with them and you'll, you'll take them back as a friend. Jesus, you're not meant to be that. You never called us in scripture to be your friend. You've called us to be your followers. And I think that because of your love and your grace, you still give second chances even today to those that are wrestling with this because they know they've been nothing more than a friend of Jesus. So God touch our hearts today. Awaken a wonder in us of who you are that we would be utterly and truly amazed at how you love us and how you care for us and how you help us and redeem us. So we confess to you our failure. We have thought we could get by just being a good friend to Jesus. Instead, we need to commit ourselves as a follower to you today. So Lord, for those that need to respond in that way to you, I just pray right now in this moment, they would say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for the ways that I've let you just become familiar. I've grown up with you. I've grown up around you. I just feel like you've been part of my life, but never the Lord of my life. But today, I commit to you
1: not as a friend, but as a follower. Let me be a person
0: of incredible faith and shrug off the amazing unbelief that I've demonstrated, maybe not through what I've thought, but how I've actually lived my life, as though you really didn't exist except on one day of the week. Touch our hearts toward you today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.